Dr. Amy Vertries is a general surgeon in Columbia, Tennessee, the founder of Columbia Surgery Partners, and is affiliated with Maury Regional Hospital. She went to med school at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences and trained at Walter Reed. She is the founder of BOSS, the Business of Surgery series, where she offers courses on how surgeons can enjoy clinic, dealing with difficult partners, common habits that hold us back, and how we can feel fulfilled at work. Those are the issues that we discuss. She also offers group and individual coaching and has her own podcast, so be sure to check out the Business of Surgery series. I had a lot to learn from Dr. Vertries, and I'm sure you all will learn a lot too. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road. Taking out med school loans had me watching every penny. I took two buses to get to campus. During my residency, I walked 20 blocks. But since I opened a Laurel Road link checking account when I refinanced my loans, I got a crazy low rate plus a cash bonus. And all that extra money helped me finally buy my own car. Where are we going? Anywhere we want. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA, member FDIC. Dr. Amy Vertries, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I've heard you talk about this before, and I, and I love what you have to say about it. So I want you to share it with the audience. What are the keys to fulfillment? at work, right? We often talk about like happiness, happiness. I want to be happy, but really happiness is more of like a transient state. Whereas fulfillment is, is more of like a, a prolonged state. You know, I find my job fulfilling. My job doesn't make me happy. Right. So, so how, what are the keys to being fulfilled? Well, you know, I'll first start with like happiness is like truly a trap. I mean, if we are going to our job to seek happiness, good luck with that. You know, and I think that's an unfair pressure to put on our job. I'm much more like the more practical aspects of the idea of mastery and recognition. And this is a concept that I picked up in How Women Rise by Goldsmith and uh, or Goldstein and Helgeson, where they talk about actually reference something else's work about mastery and recognition. And what mastery is, is us being good at our job. And, you know, that's something we have control over. You know, we study it, we work on it, we practice, we get better. You know, as surgeons, we uh, work on our techniques, we seek other people out. You know, mastery is something that we can do that is within our control. Now, recognition is something that's different. Recognition is something we have to get from somebody else. And there's this idea of, you know, when we do a good job, we want someone to notice. And this is not the, I'm seeking someone's approval because that's, you know, as a goal, um, you can seek someone's approval as long as you're unattached to that outcome. Meaning that, you know, we all want recognition from our job. We want to be good at our job. We want other people to notice and tell us. Uh, but that's where I think some of the dissatisfaction comes from is if you're kept from doing good at your job or you're not recognized at your job, that is not going to be a good formula for our job satisfaction. And, you know, it's, it's helpful for us to understand that's what we're looking for, you know, and when we're dissatisfied in our job, trying to understand, am I not good at my job or is someone keeping me from being good at my job or am I not getting the recognition I want? And sometimes that's simply of, you know, 
finding the key to either of those. But it's also a key in interacting with other people in the world. And this plays into things like delegating of, are we interfering with someone else's mastery and recognition? And typically, like when we're trying to delegate people, you know, we a lot of times have a hesitation for delegating, thinking like, well, I don't want to feel like I'm dumping on somebody. You know, I don't want them to think that I'm not doing work. But what we're really doing when we don't delegate is that we're not giving a task to someone to gain mastery or demonstrate mastery. And we're also not recognizing them. So we're saying, not only am I not going to give you this task that's gonna allow you to be good at your job, it's going to rob you of any recognition too. And that very, very simple concept really transformed how I felt about my job and also how I interacted with other people in their job. It made it so much easier to offload some of the work that I really wanted to offload and recognizing that was actually essential. So then you're allowing them to gain mastery. So what you're referring to really anyone that we work with, correct? Like whether it's a medical assistant or an advanced practice provider or our trainees, really anyone that you can delegate to. What's the difference then between delegating and dumping? Because it sounds like it sounds like some of it's dumping and you're kind of rationalizing dumping because you're saying it's, well, it's actually, I'm helping, I'm helping them gain mastery of faxing this chart to the other, the other doctor. Cause we still fax stuff, right? Like how do we distinguish between the two? And also is, I think in some situations, many situations, dumping is okay, right? Like our time is really valuable. We're highly specialized. We're highly trained. So this this is it's delegate it's other people's jobs to do some of this stuff. So sorry. That was a lot and not really a focused question, but I feel like you know where to take it. I totally know where to take it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely true. And I think a lot of it is the mentality of it too. It's like whose job is it? You know, me as a surgeon, should I be faxing things? And you know, it in some situation, I know I don't think so at all. And and I think it's recognizing that everyone should be practicing within their job description and the top of their license, you know, and I think that recognizing that, and then we're all going to do some element of dumping, you know, for sure. But, you know, it's recognizing, should I be faxing this or should my nurse be faxing this? And, you know, like whose job is that? And I think, or maybe not even the nurse. Because the nurse has enough to do that's yes. up to their level of training. So we need to we need to hire someone that doesn't have the training of a nurse to do the faxing, right? So everyone's kind of, you know, you're escalating what everyone's doing so that they're they're working to their full potential. And that's a great point too, because I think that we also can let them have some autonomy too, is say, like, I have this fax that needs to get done. I'm gonna give this to you. I don't care how it's done as long as someone faxes it. And you know, I, I do that a lot in my office where I, I just I will sometimes give it to the exact person who I know is going to do that, or I give it to my office manager and said, take care of it, you know, and that's sort of recognizing their job as a managerial thing. And, you know, that that's, you know, typically how I handle stuff is, is try to empower the people around me. And I did not realize that, that this was a huge misstep that I made in my initial office. My transition from employed to private practice was really built on my dissatisfaction with the clinic. And, you know, I found a lot of flaws in the people that I worked with in clinic, and I did not, um, I did not like the, the relationship that I had with them. And it wasn't until afterwards when I sort of recognized this concept, how much of a role that I played in that dissatisfaction, because I came from a system that was relatively broken. I was used to doing the faxing and the workarounds and the things like that. I was used to doing all of it. 
And, you know, I'm not a control freak at all, but I just like to know everything's getting done. <laughs> um, and joking. But so we, really what happens is like when you, when you kind of grow up in a broken system and you're doing a lot of things, it's hard to delegate stuff because, you know, and sometimes we think it's easier and it, it is easier to do that. Um, but what I was doing was I was robbing them of that ability to feel useful. And, you know, I was also robbing them of the ability to get better or feel like I was, um, you know, feeling that they were of some use. And, you know, so I fed into that dissatisfaction and I've changed by just being very conscious of how I interact with someone. Um, that was one evolution of, um, you know, my job satisfaction and helping someone else's job satisfaction. And one thing that um, as I've been trying to get better um, with delegation, which has always been challenging, is um, this idea of I tell a task and I do it in all the details and then I get frustrated that it doesn't get done, you know, and then I'm starting to recognize that I'm delegating a task, but I'm not necessarily delegating my thought process and recognizing that, you know, it's more than just the steps, you know, and it's more than just you know, do these steps one, two, one, two, three kind of thing. It's me letting them know, um, this is how I do it. Or I give them tasks and I say, why don't you show me how you're going to do it? And so recognizing how they interact in the job is really helpful as well, because people are not going to do everything like we do. They may actually do it better, um, or they may not, and we need to know how to overcome their limitations um, as well. And so, you know, really interacting with people and, you know, paying attention to what they need um, and how they can help us. This interaction is something that's so critical in, um, in job satisfaction, not just for us, but for them as well. I feel like there's a parallel there with loading the dishwasher, right? <laughs> like... This is, this is how you load a dishwasher. People like this. You say how I'm doing it. This is how you do it. No, no, you're doing it wrong. Doing it wrong. You're going to have to do so many, you're going to have to run it so many more times. It's so much more, but like, really? It's the, just let someone else run the dishwasher. Okay. Just because they're not doing it like you, but right. Nobody else knows how to do. Just let someone else load and run the dishwasher. And there's so many things in our lives and our practices that, you know, our, our amount to that. To me, it's, I mean, to me, it's, it's a game of spatial relations. I actually don't hate loading the dishwasher, but um, I see how much I can fit in. Um, but, but I think that, that, that I, works in this situation, right? Like a lot of things that, that, have, that run a parallel to that. Well, I'm sitting here wondering, why is he attacking me? Oh, say, let me just tell you about the dishwasher. <laughs> it's just, everywhere. Just there, Every I just get it done. Put the dishes in the dishwasher. My husband will unload those and put them in a particular order. And, you know, I, I've, That's I me. I'm that guy. <laughs> well, at first I was like, what the heck? But then, then he, then this is actually a really great example because then he showed me his thought process. He's like, if I do it this way and then, you know, it'll be easy to, to, to offload and this and that, and, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, fine, fine. You know, so it wasn't just him telling me what, what to do. It was having him share his thought process. And then I bought into it. It's like, now I'm like, okay, fine. I will spend two more seconds or let's be honest. Now I just plead ignorance and still let him do it. But let him do it. Yep. yep. <laughs> Delegating. 
Delegating. Yeah, that, that reminds me of a Shel Silverstein poem. If I do the dishes and I drop one on the floor, maybe I won't have to do the dishes anymore. Oh, no, no, no. I don't know how to do it. You know how to do it right. You you, you do it. So I, I love that the that mastery and recognition, you, you really spin it on its head. Like for fulfillment, you use it for yourself, right? But then you use it for your staff as well. So mastery and recognition are important for them. So one, give them th- situations where they can feel like they have mastery, not like a you know, derogatory, like, like where they actually, you know, it, it's a challenge for them and then give them recognition. But for yourself, I, I want to pull these apart from the physician for, for us, right? So like mastery, how are you defining mastery? Because I could see like, you know, you're a general surgeon, I'm an ENT, overlap here with like thyroids, right? So we both do th- thyroids. Um, there are some people out there that just do thyroid parathyroid. Right. That's their whole practice. And so they're going to get, but they're not, you know, like, you know, they're going to conferences to make sure that they're learning the latest and greatest, but you know, there's still doesn't, I'm not sure how you can really push the envelope with something like that. Whereas, you know, another type of you're learning advanced robotic techniques and doing things that other people haven't done. Like, is, is, is that what you have to do for mastery? Or can you just do the same stuff that you've always done? And that's also considered a Like, how are you defining yeah. mastery? Oh, I think, gosh, what a great question. And, you know, as a, as you were talking, I was like, well, how do I do that? And for mastery, for me, it's just basically the statement, I'm good at my job. And this is a feeling that you get. This is a thought that you offer yourself. You know, this feeling of satisfaction comes from the thought, I'm good at my job. And the only person who really can determine that feeling for myself is me. And if I decide that all I'm going to do is this procedure and I'm satisfied with it. And when I go there, I get a sense of accomplishment, then that is mastery. And so we can be recognized from other people, but the mastery is a thought that I'm good at my job and a feeling of satisfaction. And it's only something that we can generate for ourselves. Got it. Got it. Okay. So the, and then the recognition, I have to push back on a little bit, right? Cause that sounds like you need external validation for fulfillment. So is that really what we're saying, what you're saying, that we need this external validation? Because, uh, you know, all the other, can we call them new, new agey, but fine, new agey types of things is like, you should only need internal validation. You shouldn't need external validation. It all should come from within. Or are you saying, actually, we're human and we do require external validation. Let's just own up to it. Totally. I think that we all are going seeking approval. You know, I think that we all would like approval, but the the people I think that are the happiest are the ones that are not tied to it. You know, like if you go to a job and you're good at it and no one ever says anything, I think that, I mean, that'll be an okay-ish job. But if you go and you do it and you're happy with it and others like, hey, I like how you did that. I mean, that really makes us feel good. And, you know, I do think that we're all at some level really wanting approval and, you know, wanting to feel something. And, you know, other people can only generate that feeling for us by, you know, what we think of what they say. Um, And because you can imagine like, you know, well, actually, it's a really interesting question because as surgeons, and I try to really help my, um, the folks I talk to, that our patients tell us all the time they're doing a good job you know, like we just don't listen to them. We're listening to many, many different people or, you know, listening to the the negative um, aspects of it too. But uh, I try to remind folks to listen to the, the positivity of rounds, you know, and like even just write it down, like what, what our patients say 
on rounds because we don't hear it, uh, you know. And so we go to work going like, why doesn't anyone appreciate what I'm doing? Yet we're completely ignoring all the person. I mean, and I started writing them down and I encouraged other people to write them down too. And, you know, even just like on one rounds, like them saying, you know, you're a gift to me, you know, you saved my life. I mean, all these things, and I never actually heard them before. Um, and so, you know, the, and I got a little bit off your question, but, um, you know, we go. No, that's the external validation. Like, you're, yeah. like the question was, do we really need the external validation? Shouldn't it all be internal? And you're, and what you're saying is, let's be realistic. And it's out there. It's out there. It's out there. Just look for it. And what you're saying sounds similar to what we hear about gratitude in that, you know, the brain is a threat detection machine. And so we only really, we're, we're, we've evolved to hear the negative and not the positive because we're designed to just not die. Right. So, so anytime that we get a negative Google review or someone complains about how long they've been waiting or, you know, they don't like their scar, whatever it is like that, that really stays with us. Whereas the 40 patients before them that are like, oh my doctor, you're the best. You're so amazing. Thank you so much. And, you know, oh, the reason I'm here to see you is because my 13 best friends all see you and they told me that you're the best person to see, right? Like, and so we, we don't, we don't remember these things. And so what you did, you started writing them down as a way to train your brain, which is what gratitude journals are, right? Just, just a way to train the brain to recognize the positive when it happens. Yes. And, you know, and in, in answering your question. By the way, I don't gratitude journal. Sorry, I'm a complete hypocrite. <laughs> I'm saying how great it is. And I, I don't do it. I tried and it didn't. So, but sorry, sorry, continue. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I guess the question is, is like, how does it help? And it does help, but we don't have to necessarily do it all the time. But sometimes we need frequently reminders about how that helps. But to answer your question, you do like, do we need it? Imagine a clinic, like two clinics. Oh, I'm sorry, office hours, because we talked about this. Office before. hours. Yes, it's not clinic. It's office hours. Maybe in that place <laughs> that you used to work that, you know, that's all broken. That's the clinic. You don't want to go to the clinic. You want to be seen in my office hours. Yes. Exactly. Sorry. I mean, imagine the office hours where you go there and you're like, you have a hernia. Okay, we'll do this on, on Friday. And then that's it. Um, and they come back and like, you, I've, I fixed your hernia. Okay. You know, and versus the, like, I was in pain before. And now, you know, I feel so much better. And I really, it took me a while to find someone, you know, all these other things. I mean, that's basically approval that we're getting from someone. And you can imagine office hours where you just hear like A and B and had whole fix whole versus, you know, the other thing where you get a little bit uh, of a feeling from someone because they offer something that's meaningful. You know, I mean, you can see that one's a job and one has a little bit more satisfaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just have to make sure we, we keep our eyes open and adjust our tuner a little bit so we, we can hear it and, and call it. Not be fall, not fall into the trap of relying on it. Just like you mentioned, like the threat of it. So we have someone that comes in and says like, you did not fix my problem. And like, well, I know you had a hole. I fix your hole. And <laughs> is, that, so, is that general surgery in a nutshell? Yeah, pretty much. Well, actually, closing holes, fixing yeah, holes. Yeah. You have a hole, patch the hole. That's not, that's broken. Let's take it out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things I'm going to give myself a little uh, validation. One of the things I, I I tend to be good at, I think, is is there aren't many non sequiturs in my interviews. I tend to have a list and I'm able to roll one question kind of into the next one. At this, I'm not. I, I apologize. This is a complete non sequitur. Let's move on to the next topic. And the next topic is difficult partners. Oh yeah. Right. This is something that you talk you talk about frequently. Yes. So I think one of the keys to fixing a problem is identifying the problem. So let's start out with when you say difficult problem, what does difficult mean? What are the ways in which 
a partner can be difficult? Oh, a, a partner can be diff- difficult in so many ways. And this is another thing that we have a perception of, you know, and I think really understanding and asking the question, why do we think they're being difficult? And I mean, let me give just like the simplest thing. You know, my partner is difficult because they ask for all this time off. And all I think about is themselves. And then I'm like, well, why does it matter that they ask for so much time off? Well, because you're just thinking of themselves. So they should be thinking of you. (laughs) Well, they could be a little more considerate, right? Like we're partners. You should be taken into account that I'm, you're, you know, I'm having to take care of your complications while you're away. Difficult partner. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting to kind of like challenge them for a bit. It's like, I'm so sick of them only thinking themselves. Why don't they think of me? (laughs) So then what do you do? What do you do in that that particular situation where it seems like the person is really not, is only looking out for themselves? Do you then change your thinking? Because it sounds like that in that situation, that person is probably trying to be considerate of that other partner's time, trying to be considerate of their, of their, you know, family life and other responsibilities. And, and, and so do you then try to be more selfish and just look out for yourself? Like, you know, how do you react to that type of difficulty? Well, it's recognized the fact that a lot of times we're having this conversation in our head, you know, Mm -hmm. like the partners over there, they just submitted this patient, this piece of paper that asked for some time off. So they're over here in the corner, whereas we are looking at the sheet, having all kinds of dialogue of, they are only thinking of themselves. Why did they ask for this? You know, why don't they ever consider me? You know, and that it's a lot of internal drama that it really is just a lot of suffering. Whereas if you say, you know, like now I'm only thinking of myself, um, but really it's like, if there's a problem with a partner, like once we get out of this idea, like they are such a problem, then we can kind of back up and say like, well, maybe they just don't know. Like, you know, maybe they don't recognize that I actually have a life too. And, you know, we can actually maybe sort of like not make a lot of these assumptions about what they're doing and say, hey, I noticed that you asked for this weekend and I'm noticing that that there's more time that you're taking than I am. And is there a way for us to even this out? I mean, it's just kind of making the assumption that they're not this terrible, awful person that they just don't know. Um, Once we drop our dialogue about them, this typically just a little bit in our head, because what happens is, is that we build this resentment, we create this story about them, we have all these things about them. And so then what happens is we interact with them from resentment and, and frustration, and then we become the difficult partner. <laughs> it sounds like you could be a marriage counselor. That's what this sounds like. It does. That doesn't sound like managing a difficult partner at work. That sounds like managing a relationship at home, right? Like, you know, the person isn't doing what you expected them to do. So you have this whole argument in your head and you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you actually have a conversation about it. Turns out that everything's much better than you thought it was. So, yeah. okay. So, so ver- verbalizing, verbalizing, but those conversations are uncomfortable inevitably, right? Starting that, Oh, you know, I, you took this extra weekend. You knew that I had to go to my nephew's bar mitzvah and you took it anyway. And like, you know, those are hard conversations. How do you, how do you get comfortable being uncomfortable? I don't want to be uncomfortable. Well, I think that really is that, do we have to be uncomfortable at all? Um, You know, it's the the idea of, of understanding 
like the thoughts that we're having in our head and how they make us feel a certain way. You know, my resentment for a partner asking for more time off is just based on this thought that I think they're being selfish. And I mean, is that thought even true? Like if we change this thought of, I think they're just being selfish, which leads me to resentment and to say like, how do I want to feel about this? Maybe I want to feel curious about this. Like, I wonder why they asked for so many days off. And I wonder if they even know that this matters to me. You know, I, and really kind of embracing and really feeling uh, a feeling that we want to feel like, and if we want to feel understanding or if we want to feel, you know, um, respectful, I mean, these are feelings that we can have about someone. And if we're feeling curious and, you know, grateful that we have a partner, you know, if we look at these emotions, we can approach that interaction in a way that's going to be so much more productive. Um, and, and if you are feeling curious, are you feeling respectful? It is to go to the person and say, like, I notice, I noticed this, and I just want to bring this up to you. I really just need to talk about it. You know, if we really kind of channel the feeling that we want to have, that other person is going to feel that. And if, um, and this is, you know, never split the difference. Um, Chris Voss is a fantastic book of, you know, the tactical empathy. Like, I know that you probably have something going on, but I do as well. And uh, I just, I really want us to come to an understanding and is coming at it from a, a place of, you know, curiosity and respect will ask us this question versus a resentment of like, I mean, why did you ask for this weekend off? I mean, you had to know this was important to me. Why are you asking for every weekend off? You know, and it's so funny because a lot of times we don't say that, but if you're like channeling it from your brain, you know, like, you know, like when people are thinking something and, and I was coaching someone who's like, I'm interacting with this guy and I think he's an idiot and he's like acting so weird towards me, but I never said he was an idiot. I'm like, but, but did you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have trouble covering that up. Yeah. I have trouble. Well, yeah, we I all no do. Poker face. Yeah. And so I think that the, the key is, is that you truly have to believe in the outcome that you want. Like, do you really want to win this argument or do you really want to have a partner that you could have a good relationship with? Yeah. You know, and it could be difficult when you have someone that you don't understand. You know, I've, for the last five years, have had a partner where we are like wildly different. And it's it was very frustrating for a long period of time because I wanted him to act a certain way. I suspect he wanted me to act a certain way. And it took a, a while to get around to the fact of just recognizing that we just do things differently. And there's nothing's gone wrong. Can you get him to load the dishwasher? <laughs> <laughs> I think we would agree to pay someone else to do it. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what, one of your other talks is 12 habits holding us back. Oh yeah. Rather than having you give the entire, right. Give the entire talk. Just pick one. Just pick one. Give us give us a highlight. Give us a taste of one of the 12 habits holding us back and what, what we can do to change that habit. Oh, yeah. 100%. This applies to all doctors. It is um, overvaluing expertise. And that is the, like, imagine, I think something should happen in the hospital. And I charge into the CMO's office and I was like, I am the surgeon. This should change. We think that matters, right? We think that we should have some say in something that happens in the operating room, right? We're doctors, right? Yeah. Ah, nope. That's, that is the power. We have the expertise. 
but that is only one of the four powers in an organization. Okay. The power of expertise. So not only is that only one out of four, but it's not even necessarily the most important. It's the um, power of expertise. It is the power of position. I'm not in a position to make that. It is the power of connection, the people that you know, and, and building allies. And it is the power of, of charisma. It's our ability to influence other people, the power of influence. And so us charging in there and saying, I am the surgeon, you do what I say, is not going to get us anywhere. You have to channel all four of those. And if we don't have the position, we need to be friends with the person who does. Um, and so overvaluing expertise is something that I think that we, especially in medicine, feel like we should be making the decisions. And I think we all know that we are not making the decisions these days. I've earned it. I paid my dues. You mm -hmm. should see what I do all day. Yeah. You should see the risks that, you know, the stress that I'm under. And I should be able to make these decisions. Um, it, it There was, we did a, a podcast a while ago with, a, with another uh, physician coach who had talked about how to get allies. And, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting because when I was a resident, right, you've got your list of things to do. You triage it, you know, list of to most to least important. And then you get, you get to work. And if someone's going to talk to you in the hallway, they're going to be wasting your time because you've got stuff to do. However. Those are potential allies. So the chit chat in the hallway, that chit chat in the doctor's lounge is another rung of those, of those four. So now you've got the expertise and now you've got allies too. Why? You chit chat, you ask them about their kids, ask them about their family, ask them about their vacation, how there's a weekend, whatever. Those look like new shoes, right? So, but that was, uh, you know, it, it's an easy way to add something else to get more of what you want done in the hospital. Yes, but that leads to another one of those habits though, which is failure to leverage relationships. You know, a lot of us, especially women are very good at, at building relationships. We are not very good at leveraging them. We don't want to ask people for favors. We don't want to say like, hey, you know, I know we talked about our kids and all too. Hey, you know, why don't you help me out with this? You know, we don't want to ask for things because we feel, you know, bad about it, but not recognizing that leveraging a relationship is not bad. It is not recognizing the fact that they we can offer something to them potentially as well. And so building relationships is one thing, but you have to be willing to leverage it as well. Hey, do you think you can help me out with this? Gives them an opportunity for mastery and recognition. Totally. So we're the callback, <laughs> the beginning of the episode. Exactly. Excellent. So before before we got on the before we started the recording, we were talking about our kids and and negotiating, right? <laughs> so it seems, you know, and, and the conversation that we just had with the imaginary person in the hallway could even be a bit of a of a negotiation. Hey, can you help me out? You know, I can. I, I'll, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, something like that. So it seems like a, everything is a negotiation. Is everything really a negotiation? Yeah, I mean, what is negotiation really? It's just a conflict. And, you know, we have negotiations internally in our head and we have like, for example, like you some in the hallway, that's a negotiation with yourself. Do I run and hide because I don't want to deal with it? Or, you know, this internal part of us that wants something from that person or, or feels like we want an outcome that that person could help us with, you know, that is a negotiation that we have with ourselves, um, you know, of like, is, is this safe or should I run? Is it worth it to interact or, you know, like those are the, some of the negotiations because negotiation is just a conflict and that could be internally. It could be with the other people. 
And, you know, it sometimes is a perception of whether there's a conflict or not, but, but typically like we're all trying to navigate getting something that we want and, you know, not everything is guaranteed to get what you want. And there's where the conflict comes in is like, is it worth it to do whatever, or should I not do something? Hmm. Yeah. I never, I never really thought of it that way. I never, you know, um, it's interesting to, to be able to view things through that through that lens that maybe you didn't view as negotiation or even as conflict, right? Some things really are conflict, but they're not quite as adversarial, so you don't yeah. necessarily view them that way. Yeah. Um, so there's there's one more thing that I want to talk to you about. And as as surgeons, um, I mean, I call myself more like surgeon light. You know, I'm not really, you know, I, I never... Like we couldn't, we had oh. to delay this interview because you had, a, you know, a surgery that you had to, had to add on. So we had to do this a different date. Like, you know, that never, I'm an ENT that doesn't, at least in my practice, that doesn't happen to me. Um, but I still do have complications, right? Mm -hmm. There's a saying about tonsils. If you're not getting tonsil bleeds, you're not doing enough tonsillectomies. So a tonsil bleed isn't necessarily a, a dig at your skill or, or, or mastery, lack thereof. Uh, but if you get a couple tonsil bleeds in a row, then it starts to erode at your confidence, right? So, so how do we mentally grapple with complications? Oh, I love this. It starts from the informed consent. And this was like a mind-blowing concept to me when I thought about this. So we, we give this informed consent. We're required to give this informed consent. We think it's the right thing to do to tell the patients all the things are going to happen. And we ask the patient, do you consent for this procedure? Do we consent ourselves to accept that risk? <laughs> we tell ourselves it's not going to happen. We tell ourselves, I mean, if someone asks us, well, you can have a complication, sure. But in our mind, we don't think it's going to happen. And I think, you know, taking that moment to recognize the fact that something might happen is the first step is that we're arguing with reality if we don't. So preemptively planning how we're going to deal with a complication is probably the most helpful how am I going to deal if this patient has bleeding? Am I going to be okay with that? I injure a surrounding structure. Am I going to be okay with that? You know, this patient could die from allergic reaction that, you know, or malignant hyperthermia. Am I okay with that? You know, we have to really recognize that we're resisting reality if we think that this is not going to happen, whether it's one or a hundred, but certainly every case we do buys more lottery tickets for that winner. You know, there are a lot of callbacks in, in this episode to, uh, to previous episodes. Um, and one that, you know, that reminds me of an interview with Stacia Dearman, who talks about, you know, she, she's an emergency, a pediatric emergency medicine physician who had, you know, the worst complication that someone could have. And she talks about practicing medicine after that, like coming back and seeing patients again, after having the complication of all complications. And, um, and that's what I'm hearing from you. And, and one thing that she said was, um, you know, the, we do hard things. We do hard things. And what that's what you're saying. You're saying we could get complications. If I'm not okay with that, then I shouldn't be doing this. So I need to be okay with that. And that's what she said. She said, every day we do hard things. We put ourselves in harm's way you know, our patients are the one really in harm's way, but it can affect us and it can infect us really, really deeply. And we have to be okay with that. Otherwise, we 
we can't continue practicing and we have to accept it and we have to recognize it. And I think that allows us that recognition that we do things that other people can't do, that other people wouldn't be willing to do. They wouldn't be able to get up the next morning and continue doing it, but we're doing it. So having complications is one of those things. It will happen and you got to be okay with it. And I think internalizing it before each surgery, when you're consenting the patient is a really um, poetic or um, it's just a really nice way to do it, right? Going through it in your head. Am I okay? They're okay with it. They're saying they're okay with it. Yeah. Am I okay with it? And the other piece is, is to ask us, you know, what does the patient really expect of us? And, you know, and it, we expect a perfect outcome and that's the problem. We think that they expect a perfect outcome too. But, you know, if you really think, what does the patient want? After a complication, what does the patient want? You know, they've already consented to the possibility of it. They hurt us because they only heard it once. We say like hundreds of times I forget it, but they hurt us when we said that. So I think, you know, the, the, the most success that I felt after having if you could have success after complication is when someone says, you told me this might happen. And so then I knew that, that I, that, that I set the expectation, which reminded me of the expectation. And the fact that we discuss this ahead of time is the most helpful thing is preparing the patient for the possibility, you know, in the case, doing the best that you can and afterwards facing the reality of whatever happened. And so when they say that you told me this could happen, then, you know, they acknowledge the fact that this was accepted ahead of time. So we should acknowledge the fact that this was accepted ahead of time. And the other aspect is, is, you know, what do they really want? When you talk to someone who's had a complication and I've I had someone that came to me, had a complication, her biggest frustration was they never called me afterwards. They never told me what happened. The opera port is not miss is missing. I've asked them details and they shut it down because they thought she was going to sue. So she heard nothing. She's like, I just, I just wanted to know what happened to my body. And so what patients want is to know what happened to them. They want to know that you're going to be there for them. Um, they want to know that you care and they want to be supported through this and they need that. And we need that. That's yeah, the nobody likes to see their own want. flaws. Nobody likes to see their own flaws. So if you have a complication, that flaw is going to walk back into your office and you're going to have to, you're going to have to look at it. So the, the natural thing to do is to try to ignore it. Right. But that's mm -hmm. clearly, clearly the wrong thing no. to do. Right. The patient's going to feel abandoned. They're more likely to litigate if you do something like that. So you need to, you need to be rolling out the red carpet. You need to be doing everything you possibly can to make this patient to take care of this patient and make them feel like you're taken care of because really perception is reality. You, 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 you know, what they feel yeah. and versus what you think you, ultimately what they feel is. That is where you fail the patient. More important. You did yeah. not fail the patient on the complication. You failed them when you did not support them. Yeah. And you know, this, I don't want to end on something negative. Could we? Well, okay. <laughs> so this is actually the most important, the most critical aspect when it comes to complications is shame resilience. And I get this um, from Brene Brown's uh, work um, on vulnerability and the three steps for shame resilience that I always, whenever anyone posts anything about a complication, I always post these three steps of shame resilience, because the biggest problem we have with complications, you're never going to feel great about them. There's guilt, which is we feel bad about the event and there's shame that we feel bad about ourselves. And, you know, it's the feel bad about ourselves, that shame is where the, the true problem is, because if you feel guilty, you know, 
you'll you'll want to gather people. It's it's people coming together and providing support. And that includes from the patient and includes from our colleagues. But we're open to hearing from other people because it's about the event and we want to understand about the event. We want to heal from the event. And shame is is about ourselves. We don't want to be seen. We withdraw. We don't hear the what the patients understand us. We don't hear from our colleagues that, that that this could have happened to anybody. And so we never actually get any kind of feedback or help. So shame resilience is what you really want to focus on because you want to be able to move that shame to simply guilt. So then you're open to be able to heal from this event. And so shame resilience is three steps. And one is reach out to a trusted source. Now that could be you know online in some of these groups or a friend or a trusted colleague. It's reaching out to someone that you trust and share what you what you feel. Um, the second is talking kindly to yourself, is recognizing when you're not being very kind to yourself. Would you tell your colleague this? Would you tell yourself as a child this? You know, like, are you talking to yourself kindly? And the third, and this is kind of going what we were talking about, is owning the story. You want to own the story so you can own the ending. And when you have a complication and you own that, then you're able to own that story, which means you can own the ending. I can go and share that complication with the patient and we can both find a way to move on versus never owning it. So then you're at the victim of, of whatever happens. And those three steps are easy to remember. Um, and it's, it's really, really transforming to be able to avoid that shame, which is going to put you in a shame spiral versus guilt, which is going to allow you to heal. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. So if people want to learn more about, you know, I mean, you have, you have courses for, for a lot of the stuff that we talked about today, right? You've got, you've got your courses, you've got the boss surgery podcast, you do coaching and you close people's holes. You close holes too. So, Take so too. <laughs> if there's any gallbladders left, I'm not so sure. <laughs> you've gotten the most of them already. Um, so, so if people want to find you, where, where do they find you? BossSurgery.com is probably the easiest place to find me. Uh, I also have a, a Facebook group, uh, Boss Business of Surgery Series, and feel free to join. It's free. Um, and that's that's the main way to find me. Fantastic. Dr. Amy Vertries, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Dr. Block. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.